Chapter 6, Part 2 of Famous Sea Fights by John R. Hale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah Williams. Famous Sea Fights by John R. Hale. Chapter 6, Part 2. In June, Howard had news that the Armada was not only at sea, but far on its voyage. Merchantmen ran for shelter to Plymouth, and told how they had met at least two squadrons of large ships with great red crosses on their foresails off Land's End, and in the entrance of the channel. One ship had been chased and fired on by a Spaniard. Then all trace of the enemy was lost. There was no news of him in the channel or on the Irish coasts. The weather had been bad, and it was rightly conjectured that the squadrons sighted off Land's End were only detachments of the Armada scattered by the storm, and that the great fleet had put back to Spain, probably to Coruna. This was soon confirmed by reports from France. For a while there was an impression that the danger was over. Drake, Hawkins, and other captains urged that now was the time to take the English fleet to the Spanish coast and destroy the crippled and discouraged armada in its harbors. But the Queen and her council hesitated to adopt so bold a policy, and only a few ships were sent out to watch for the enemy in the Bay of Biscay. These returned, driven before a strong south wind, and then fugitives from the channel brought news that there was a crowd of ships off the Lizard, and Howard, in a short note, reported that he had gone out to engage them. The Armada had come in earnest at last. After refitting at Coruna, Medina Sidonia had sailed on the 22nd of July, with fine weather and a fair south wind. Progress was not rapid, for the great fleet's speed was that of its slowest ships. On the 26th, when the Armada was well out to sea off the headlands of Brittany, the morning was dull and cloudy, and towards noon the wind went round to the northward and increased to half a gale, raising a heavy sea. The course was changed to the eastward, and the ships were kept under shortened sail. The four galleys, unable to face a rising storm, ran for shelter toward the French coast, and never rejoined. They went southwards before the wind. One was wrecked near Bayonne, the other three reached Spain. All the next day the gale blew heavily. The armada, scattered over a wide extent of the sea, beat slowly to windward, working away from the dangerous French coast. Many ships temporarily parted company. It looked as if there would be another failure. But on Thursday the 28th, to quote the Spanish Admiral's diary, the day dawned clear and bright, the wind and sea more quiet than the day before. Forty ships were counted to be missing. The Admiral sent out three pinaces to look for them, and the next day, Friday the 29th of July, had news that all but one of them were with Pedro de Valdes off the Lizard. This was the crowd of ships reported that same day to Howard at Plymouth. The missing ship, the Santa Ana, the flagship of Biscay, rejoined later. In the evening, Medina Sidonia saw the coast of England and notes that it was said to be the Lizard. On the Saturday, the Admiral writes that, At dawn the Armada was near with the land, so as we were seen therefrom, whereupon they made fire and smokes. The crew of a captured fishing-boat later in the day told him they had seen the English fleet coming out of Plymouth, and in the evening Medina Sidonia's diary tells that many ships were seen, but because of the mist and rain we were unable to count them. A council of war had been held on board his flagship, the San Martin. The wind was southwest the very wind to carry the armada into Plymouth, and dead against the English fleet coming out. 
De Leva proposed that the opportunity should be taken to attack the English in Plymouth Sound. Once in the narrow waters, the Spaniards could run them aboard and have the advantage of their superior numbers of fighting men in a hand-to-hand conflict on the decks. The soldiers' advice was good, but the sailors were against him. They argued that the fleet must enter Plymouth Sound in line ahead at the risk of being destroyed in detail, as the shoals at the entrance, those on which the breakwater of today stands, left only two narrow channels. De Leva's bold plan was rejected, and it was decided that the armada should proceed up the channel. Next day the fighting began. The wind had shifted to the northwest, a good enough wind for working up channel on the port tack. English contemporary accounts say the armada was formed in a half-moon, a centre and two wings slightly thrown forward. Howard had, as yet, only brought part of his fleet out of Plymouth, but though greatly outnumbered by the Spaniards, he had his best ships and his most enterprising captains with him, and, nothing daunted by the grand array of the armada, he began a series of harassing attacks upon it. It was Sunday morning, 31st of July, according to the Spanish reckoning, the 21st according to the old style still used in England. It was a sunny day, with just enough wind to help the nimble, seaworthy English in their guerrilla tactics. Howard's policy was to take full advantage of the three factors that were on his side in the solution of the problem, better seamanship in his crews, better gunnery, and handier ships. To close with and grapple in the fashion of earlier naval battles would have been to risk being crushed by superior numbers. His policy was to hang upon the flank or rear of the armada, close in and try to cripple one or more of the ships by artillery fire, slip away if the enemy turned upon him, and come on again as they gave up the attempt to close, and he was ready all the time to swoop down upon and capture any ship that might be detached from her consorts. At the time, armchair critics on shore found fault with what they considered the half-hearted conduct of the admiral, and the Queen's Council inquired why it was that none of the Spanish ships had been boarded. Sir Walter Raleigh, who, as Professor Lawton notes, must have often talked with Howard and Drake and Hawkins while the business was fresh in their memories, thus explains and defends the admiral's conduct. Certainly, he that will happily perform a fight at sea must believe that there is more belonging to a good man of war upon the waters than great daring, and must know that there is a great deal of difference between fighting loose or at large and grappling. To clap ships together without consideration belongs rather to a madman than a man of war, for by such an ignorant bravery was Peter Strozzi lost to the Azores, when he fought against the Marquis of Santa Cruz. In like sort had the Lord Charles Howard, Admiral of England, been lost in the year 1588, if he had not been better advised than a great many malignant fools were, that found fault with his demeanour. The Spaniards had an army aboard them, and he had none. They had more ships than he had, and of higher building and charging, so that— had he entangled himself with those great and powerful vessels, he had already endangered this kingdom of England, for twenty men upon the defences are equal to a hundred that board and enter, whereas then, contrarywise, the Spaniards had a hundred for twenty of ours to defend themselves withal. But our admiral knew his advantage and held it, which had he not done, he had not been worthy to have held his head. The shift of the wind to the northwest had given the English the weather gauge. They could run down before it on the enemy, and beat back against it in a way that was impossible for the clumsy galleons. Thus Howard and his captains could choose their own position and range during fighting. It began by a pinnace, appropriately named the Defiance, firing a shot at the nearest Spaniards, a challenge to battle. 
Medina Sidonia held his course and took no notice of it. Howard's squadron now swept past his left and then engaged the rear ships. The admiral himself in the Ark steered for de Leva's tall galleon, the Rata Coronada, perhaps taking her to be the flagship of the whole armada. The two ships were soon in action, the English gunners firing at the Spaniards' great hull, and de Leva's men aiming at the masts and yards of the Ark in hope of bringing down her spars and sails, crippling, then boarding her. The better gunnery was on the English side. They fired three shots to the Spaniards' one, and every shot told on the huge target, and shots in the hull meant much loss of life and limb in the crowded decks. As recalled with the rear division shortened sail and turned to the help of de Leva, the Ark and her consorts bore away, only to return again to the attack, bringing their guns into action against Ricalde's huge galleon, the Santa Ana, and Pedro Valdez's ship, the Rosario, Capitana, or flagship of the Biscayan Armada. These two had become separated from the main body with a few of her ships that now formed a kind of rearguard. Frobisher in the Triumph and Hawkins in the Victory were prominent in the attack. On the Spanish side, several of the flagships joined in this rearguard fight. The admirals showed a chivalrous disposition to come to close quarters, and thus Howard was engaged with some of the largest and best commanded ships of the enemy. Oquendo, the admiral of Guipuscoa, in his twelve-hundred-ton galleon, called, like that of Ricalde, the Santa Ana, had soon to draw out of the fight, with his ship on fire and badly damaged, not by the English cannon, but by a powder explosion on his main gun-deck. One only wonders that such accidents were not frequent on both sides, for the power was ladled into the guns from open gunpowder kegs, and matches were kept burning beside each gun. The fighting, loose and large, went on for about three hours. Ricalde's ship was badly hulled, and also had her rigging cut up and one of her masts damaged. Pedro Valdez's flagship, the Rosario, was twice in collision with a consort, with disastrous results. Her bowsprit was carried away, and her foremast went over the side, the strain on the rigging bringing down the main topmast with it. When the English drew off just before sundown, Valdez was busy cutting away the wreckage. Medina Sidonia shortened sail to enable the rearward ships to rejoin, and then held his course up the channel. Valdez sent a request to him that a ship should be detailed to tow the disabled Rosario, which otherwise could not keep up with the fleet. It is generally stated that Medina Sidonia took no notice of the message and abandoned Valdez to his fate, but in his narrative the Duke reports to King Philip that he personally endeavoured to assist the disabled Rosario, and succeeded in removing the wounded from her, only failing to save her, owing to the heavy sea and darkness of the weather. The English did not seem to have been troubled by the weather, and it could not have been very bad, or the wounded could not have been taken by boats from Okendo's ship. Evidently no great effort was made to succour the Rosario, and the ships detailed for the work did not like to lie in isolation so near the English during the night. The impression in the Armada certainly was that the gallant Valdez had been shamefully abandoned by the Admiral. Before sunset a council of war had been held by Howard on board the Ark, it was decided to follow up the armada through the short summer night. To Drake, in the Revenge, was assigned the task of keeping touch with them and guiding the pursuit by displaying a large stern lantern on his ship. After dark Howard lost sight of the lantern, and then thought he had picked it up again, but at daylight he found that he must have steered by a light in the armada, for as day broke he lay with only a few ships perilously near the main body of the enemy. Drake explained that in the darkness he had thought that some ships of the enemy were turning back, and had followed them. 
he had certainly failed in his important duty, and there was a suspicion that the veteran buccaneer was really maneuvering to make sure of a prize, for at sunrise his ship, the Revenge, lay near the crippled Rosario, which had been deserted by her consorts. He summoned Valdez to surrender, and the Spaniard, with his ship helpless and menaced by the main English fleet, hauled down his flag. The huge galleon was towed into Weymouth, the first prize of the campaign. Howard had drawn off the enemy, helped to secure the Rosario, and rallied his own fleet, which had straggled during the night. This day, Monday, the 1st of August, or the 22nd of July, old style, there was no fighting, the Armada working slowly up channel, followed by the English out of cannon range. Medina Sidonia formed a rearguard of forty galleons and three galleasses, in all forty-three of the best ships with the Armada to confront the enemy, so that there should be no hindrance to our joining with the Duke of Parma, and the Duke with the rest of the Armada should go in the van, so that the whole fleet was divided into only two squadrons, Don Alonso de Leva taking the rear under his charge. At eleven a.m. Oquendo's ship was reported to be sinking. Her crew and the king's money were taken out of her, and the Santa Ana, largest but one of King Philip's galleons, disappeared under the grey-green waves of the channel. In two days the Armada had lost two of its divisional flagships. Howard had been reinforced during the day from the western channel ports. After the free expenditure of powder and shot the previous day, his magazines were half empty, and he husbanded his ammunition and followed up the Spaniards out of fighting range, riding to Portsmouth to have all ships there ready to join him. "'We mean so to course the enemy,' he added, "'that they shall have no leisure to land.'" Seymour reported to the council from Dover that the Armada was well up the channel, and he feared they might seize the Isle of Wight. He asked for powder and shot for his squadron, whereof we have want in our fleet, and which I have diverse times given knowledge thereof. All the English commanders felt this want of ammunition and supplies. The Queen's parsimony was endangering the country. On the Tuesday morning, 2nd of August, 23rd of July, old style, the Armada was off Portland. In the night the wind had gone round to the northeast, and as the sun rose Howard's fleet was seen to be between the Spaniards and the land, and to the leeward of them. Medina Sidonia was no sailor, but his veteran commander saw the chance the shift of wind had given them. The armada turned from its course up channel, and on the starboard tack stood toward the English fleet, hoping in Spanish phrase to catch the enemy between the sword and the wall. It was an anxious moment for Howard and his captains when the armada came sweeping down on them, the galeasses in front pushing ahead with sail and oar, behind the long lines of galleons with the wind in the painted sails of their towering masts. It looked as if the Spaniards would soon be locked in close fight with the English squadron, with every advantage on the side of King Philip's floating castles. Led by the Ark, the English ships began to beat out to seaward with scant room for the maneuver. But just as the close fight seemed inevitable, and the tall Regazona had almost run the Ark aboard, and while both ships were wrapped in a fog of powder smoke, the wind suddenly shifted again, backing to the northward. Howard was now working out well from the land, and every moment improved the position. There was a heavy cannonade on both sides, but as the range lengthened, the advantage was with the better gunners of the English ships. The Galeasses, led by the great Florencia, tried, with the help of their long oars, to fall on the English rear. The galleons tacked and made one more attempt to come to handstroke, but, writes Sidonia, all to little effect. The enemy avoided our attack by the lightness of their vessels. Good seamanship told. 
Howard's ships were soon in a position to resume the fighting loose tactics of the first battle, and the Spaniards knew that at this game they were the losers. So the armada bore away, resuming its course up the channel, and the cannonade died down into dropping long shots, and then ceased, for Howard had no ammunition to spare. On Wednesday the two fleets crept slowly up channel, the English some six miles astern of the armada. Once they closed up, and a few shots were exchanged with the galeasses in Ricalde's rearguard. But Howard did not want to fight. He was only putting on a brag countenance, for he was woefully short of ammunition, and writing urgently for much-needed supplies. The wind had fallen, and in the afternoon some of the galleons were drifting along, heeled over by the shifting guns and stores to enable the carpenters slung over the sides to plug shot-holes near the water-line. On Thursday the fleets were off the Isle of Wight, and it was almost a calm, with occasional flaws of wind to help them on their way. Welcome reinforcements from Portsmouth joined Howard, and he received some ammunition. Soon after sunrise there was a sharp fight. The Santa Ana and a Portuguese galleon had fallen astern of the Armada, and Hawkins, in the victory, supported by several other ships, attacked them. He had done considerable damage to the Santa Ana, and already reckoned her a prize, when the ever-ready de Leva, with the great Rata and the Galeases, came to the rescue, and Hawkins reluctantly drew off. Howard, with the Ark and his nephew, Lord Thomas Howard, in the Golden Lion, had come up to cover the retirement of Hawkins. They became involved in a fight with the Spanish rearguard, and the Ark was damaged, according to one account, by a collision, but it seems more likely that her steering gear was temporarily put out of order by a chance shot. She fell behind her consorts, and lowered boats to tow her out of action. For the moment the wind was helping the Spaniards, and, led by Medina Sidonia himself, several galleons turned to attack the Ark. But the wind freshened and changed suddenly, and the English ships escaped from their dangerous position, and so the fight ended. On Friday it was almost a dead calm. It was a bright summer day, and from the hills of the Isle of Wight there was a wondrous spectacle of the two fleets drifting idly over miles of sea with the sails flapping against the masts. On board the Ark, now repaired and again fit for action, there was a stately ceremony, the Admiral, in the Queen's name, conferring knighthood on Hawkins, Frobisher, and several other of the captains who had taken a leading part in the fighting. It was decided not to engage the enemy again till the fleets had reached the Straits of Dover. Shortness of ammunition was the reason for this decision. Medina Sidonia was anxious on the same score, he sent off a pilot-boat to the Duke of Parma, asking him to send a supply of four, six, and ten-pound shot, because much of his ammunition had been wasted away in the several fights. The mention of such small weights shows with what light artillery most of the galleons were armed. He also asked Parma to send forty light craft to join the armada, to the end he might be able with them to close with the enemy, because our ships, being very heavy in comparison with the lightness of those of the enemy, it was impossible to come to hand-stroke with them. At sunset the wind freshened, and at daybreak on Saturday the English were seen following up closely, but there was no fighting, the armada sailing with a fair wind, and the rear close up and in very good order. At ten a.m. the French coast near Bologna was in sight. At four in the afternoon the armada was off Calais, and at five orders were given to anchor in Calais roads, seven leagues from Dunkirk, or between Calais and Gravelines. The Spaniards noticed that some thirty-six ships had joined Howard's fleet, which anchored about a league away. The new arrivals were Seymour's and Winter's squadrons from Dover and the Downs. Medina Sidonia now believed that he had all but accomplished his task. 
English writers say that the enemy were disappointed and discouraged when they anchored off Calais, but there is no proof of this in contemporary Spanish accounts. Medina Sidonia thought it a success that he had got in touch with the viceroy of the Netherlands, asking him to embark his army at once and declaring his readiness to convoy it across the channel. But Medina Sidonia was in a fool's paradise. His ignorance of war was the ultimate source of his satisfaction with the outlook. Better men, like Leva and Recalde, realized that until the enemy's fleet was not merely eluded but effectively beaten, there could be no invasion of England. The French governor of Calais told the admiral that a change in the weather might make his position very unpleasant, and Medina Sidonia urged Parma to act at once by telling him that he could not tarry without endangering the whole fleet. But Parma was neither ready nor anxious for any prompt action. The fleet of the Netherlands, some fifty sail, was blockading most of the places along the coast where he had prepared his flat-bottomed boats. He knew better than to embark the force he had in hand at Dunkirk till Howard's fleet was disposed of. But Howard was determined not to leave the armada undisturbed in its exposed anchorage. He had no sooner been joined by Seymour and Winter than he hurriedly prepared eight small craft in his own fleet to be used as fire-ships by turning over to them all the inflammable lumber that he could collect from the other vessels, and removing their guns, ammunition, and stores. End of chapter 6, part 2 Recording by Sarah Williams, Germantown, Maryland, June 2008